Open your Bibles to Judges and quit thinking about that till after the service. We're in Judges chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Our text is Judges chapter 3, verses 7 through 31. The topic, Ehud thrusts his dagger deep into the stomach of fat King Eglon, then goes on to rally Israel to defeat the Moabites. The title of our message, The Way to the King's Hurt is Through His Stomach. Let's have a word of prayer. Oh, Lord, we love you so much, and we're so thankful that we can gather in this place, that we can quiet our hearts and think about your word. Judges has some of the weirdest stories in all the word of God, Lord, but each one of them speaks to us in a contemporary way. Each one of them reveals your heart, your love, your grace, your mercy. And we want to get all of that. And we will, Lord, if we remember that you're here, the Holy Spirit is here as our teacher. And so, Lord, have your way, accomplish your will, prepare and equip us, encourage and bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name, and those who agreed said. It was a dark and dangerous period in China's often mysterious history. The rebel Tai Lung had escaped after being incarcerated for 20 years. He was bent on returning to the valley to claim the title and authority that he believed was rightfully his. The last line of defense against him was a small group of warriors whose Chinese name translates roughly into English as the Furious Five. After an epic confrontation on a rope bridge called the Thread of Hope, Tai Lung was undefeated and still bent on conquest, making his way to the Jade Palace. Who could stop him from claiming the title of Dragon Warrior? Do any of you know who? Yes, the Po, the Kung Fu Panda. I gave you enough clues to realize I was talking about the DreamWorks animated film, not the actual history of China. I had some of you, though, I, I must say. Po the Panda, voiced by Jack Black, was a most unlikely hero. We are captivated by unlikely heroes because they encourage us to think that any one of us could be the hero or the heroine of some important tale. In the book of Judges, we're introduced to a series of 11 men and one woman who are raised up by God to deliver Israel from their oppressors. They're called judges, but their function is really as a hero. The judges are unlikely heroes. God wants to encourage you and I that not he can raise up a hero for us, but that we each are his hero or heroine. Three chapters in, we finally meet a hero in the book. We meet a trio of heroes, in fact. They are Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. First, we see Othniel, whose heroics we might title, Eight is Enough, verses 7 through 11. Now, in these verses, we're going to get a preview of the cycle of rebellion, followed by retribution, then repentance, then restoration, then rest, that repeats itself for three centuries, from the time of the judges all the way to the time of the kings, uh, 300 years approximately, uh, Israel will uh, seek the Lord, then fall away from the Lord, then seek the Lord, and each time they turn to the Lord, God will raise up a judge or a hero to deliver them. With apologies to Dickens, it was the worst of times, it was the best of times. First, it was the worst of times. Verse 7. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, their God, and served the Baals and Asherahs. 
They forgot the Lord. Here are four ways that the Bible says we can forget God. Number one, we can forget God by ignoring His past work for us. Uh, Deuteronomy 6.12 says, Then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's a good thing to meditate on and to remember God's work on our part, in, uh, on our behalf in the past. Uh, he's done great and mighty things in delivering us. If you're a Christian and you're saved, uh, He is the God of your salvation. One day you were headed to a Christless eternity, and then He saved you and drew you into His presence and His love. Number two, we can forget God by believing lies instead of the Word of God. Jeremiah 13, 25 says, To Israel, this is your lot. The portion I have measured out to you, declares the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in lies. Now, we're surrounded by lies in our culture. Uh, the Bible says that there is something called the doctrine of demons. It is the teaching that Satan uh, uh, pervades in our culture. Things like the theory of evolution and other things that are taught as fact. Uh, and if we're not careful, we get drawn in by those. And then within the church, uh, false teachers creep in unawares. And it's becoming um, less and less favorable to speak out against false teaching. People say you're too judgmental if you point out a false teaching, and yet they tend to lead people away from Christ and into, if nothing else, a backslidden state, if not something worse. And so we need the truth of the Word of God. Number three, we can forget God by going after other gods. Uh, it says in Hosea 2.13, I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offering to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Now, last week we touched on the idea that we don't need to be committing full-blown idolatry in order to be forgetting the Lord. James, in his little epistle, which we studied previously, said uh, that Christians could be adulterers or adulteresses by just being friendly with the world. And, and so a lot of times we sit, I sit as a Christian, I think, well, I'm not committing, I, I, I have no idols, no obvious idols, I'm not committing spiritual adultery per se, but am I flirting with things in the world? Flirting with things that I should not be uh, interested in. And that's the higher standard that we're held to in the New Testament. And then finally, Hosea 13, 6, we can forget God when we are satisfied with material prosperity. He says, when they had grazed, they became full and were filled and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. One of the most dangerous times in your Christian walk is when you are prospering spiritually and especially materially because you tend to rest in that and uh, you don't know what's coming. And we have a tendency to forget God. And so, make note of those things. Now, all of these describe Israel, but mostly they're going after the gods of the Canaanites, represented here as the Baals and the Asherahs. In verse 8, it says, Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. He sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. Uh, the writer here really likes this name. He's going to repeat it two or three more times. He just must roll off of his tongue or something. But Now, there's a saying. It's attributed to Texas Rangers. You ride without laws, you die without laws. The Israelites wanted to be like Canaanites, so God let them be treated like Canaanites, who were notorious for warring against one another and enslaving one another. They served eight years. It must have seemed, of course, like much longer. But in this first case, God said eight is enough. Because in verse 9, 
when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel. Who delivered them? Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Now, we met Othniel in chapter 1. Caleb offered his daughter in marriage to the man who would conquer the region of Kirjath-Sephir. Reading between the lines, we saw that Caleb was making sure whoever married his precious daughter was a committed, on-fire believer walking with the Lord by faith. It wasn't some weird, cultural, arranged marriage practice so much as it was that uh, his daughter was of marrying age, uh, and they, the two of them wanted her to marry someone who was a real Christian. And that should be, uh, obviously, the bedrock desire that all of us have as parents, that our daughters and our sons would marry solid Christians, because that is, uh, well, number one, that's what God commands us to do, and to not be unequally yoked with non-believers. Uh, but that is going to be the basis of a, a successful marriage and family. Nothing negative is written about Othniel. He'd already proven himself spiritually, but before you think that being spiritual was a prerequisite for being a judge, think again. The last judge in this book, Samson, he's about as opposite Othniel as you can get, but he too was a hero God raised up. Looking at all the judges, one commentator noted, the progression downward, even in Israel's leaders, is clear. And so I mention that because we have a natural tendency to think that God can only use us, only wants to use us, if we're uh, firing on all cylinders, if we're super spiritual. And what it turns out to be is a, um, I don't want to say a cop-out, but it, it turns out to be a, something that hinders us from being used of the Lord because when are you ever going to be firing on all cylinders super spiritual? And as soon as you think you are, then God can't use you at all because you're full of pride. And so a lot of times we sit around and think, well, I'm not smart enough in the Lord. I don't know enough about Jesus. I, I can't give this apologetic or whatever. I just, I don't see how God can use me in this situation. And, and you know, these judges, man, what a great encouragement. And that Samson's a huge encouragement to me. I mean, that guy was a knucklehead. We might spend six months just talking about him. I, I mean, you look at Samson and you think, is this guy even saved? And yet he's carrying gates, you know, 40 miles and, and killing people with the jawbone of an ass and stuff like that. It's, it's crazy. And so don't think that God cannot use you right where you're at. And if you say, well, I'm in sin, well, then repent. Confess and repent and then you're ready to go. It's better for you to be spiritual because you have closer fellowship with God, and that's what you were created for. God wants to talk with you and walk with you and have fellowship with you. But you never need to wait to become more spiritual to be used of God. God can use you right now, right where you are, as his hero or his heroine. Don't be looking for a hero. Be him or her. You can be the hero because of what we read next in verse 10. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord delivered Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. Right on. The very first hero reveals to us the secret for all subsequent heroes in the Bible the Spirit of the Lord. In the book of Judges, we're going to see the Spirit coming upon the various judges whom God raised up to deliver Israel from their oppressors. And even if we're not directly told that he did, we know that he did. 
Now, it's beyond the scope of our text, but I should say something about how the Holy Spirit worked with believers in the Old Testament. Obviously, men and women were saved by the Spirit, but since there is no comprehensive picture of how He worked in their hearts, theologians tend to disagree about some of the important details. For one thing, there's no promise in the Old Testament to the believer that he will be permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Some scholars argue that he did indwell them, that he must have. Others say that he did not. I tend to think he did not, although it's not a hill I choose to die on. The Spirit definitely came upon Old Testament believers to empower them to perform certain tasks. But even at that, it wasn't a matter of their faith. When we read their stories, it's obvious that the men and women did not expect the Spirit of God to come upon them, nor did they do anything to prompt it. It just happened by the sovereign choice of God. We'll see this really clearly in the life of Gideon, who is hiding, threshing grain when the the Lord comes to him and says, You mighty man of valor. Somebody standing behind me? I don't know what's going on. He wasn't in a prayer meeting at a tarrying meeting at a church waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. God just decided Gideon was his guy. The Spirit's coming upon men in the Old Testament wasn't always the same. In the case of Israel's first king, Saul, the spirit that was given to him was also taken from him when the kingdom was taken away. With Samson, the spirit came upon him only at certain times. Now, the New Testament teaches the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit in believers. When we place our faith in Jesus for salvation, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. We say he's in our hearts. Our physical bodies and the corporate body of believers is called His temple. We are the temple, individually and corporately, of the Holy Spirit. As you go on in the New Testament, you read that believers can be filled with the Spirit. That's in Ephesians 5. And that they can be baptized with the Spirit. You see that especially in Acts chapter 2, but also in some other episodes in the church. We are, in fact, commanded to go on being filled with the Spirit. Anytime anybody teaches Ephesians 5.18, where it says, be filled with the Spirit, they point out the Greek verb tense, which means go on being continuously filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's important because you can't continue something unless you start it out that way. We must, therefore, start the Christian life full of the Holy Spirit. Or at least that's the norm. God says you start the Christian life when the Holy Spirit indwells you and you are full of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you were converted as an adult, you heard the gospel and you were saved. He took up residence in you. You discovered immediately that you also were full of the Spirit because it was manifested by a release of His power. You were set free from addictions. Your language dramatically changed. You had love for your enemies. You had compassion for the lost. Your marriage was saved. Those kinds of things happened. You, uh, as the Bible says, old things passed away, and behold, all things became new. It was a release of the Holy Spirit's power in your life. Those things are typical of adult conversions. Converts are to go on being filled, to walk continuously in that power. Jesus said it would be like a torrent flowing through you, a torrential flow of water flowing through you and out into the world. One theologian says of our experience with God the Holy Spirit that it is both dynamic, powerful, and it's renewable. And that's his summary statement from looking at the evidence 
in the New Testament. Dynamic and renewable. Now that statement squares with the exhortation Jesus gave that we go on asking and seeking and knocking for the Holy Spirit, all the while believing by faith that our Father will not withhold him. Luke chapter 11, a famous passage. Ask and seek and knock. If you as parents know how to give your children good gifts, how much more will your Heavenly Father give you gifts? And then Jesus said this, he spoke concerning the Holy Spirit and coming into the lives more and more of believers. And so that's the norm. You get saved, you're full of the Spirit, and we're to go on being filled continuously in a renewable relationship with the Holy Spirit. Now, maybe you weren't converted as an adult, but you were saved from childhood. All this talk of the Holy Spirit's power is somewhat foreign. I mean, it's not like you got saved when you were five and uh, you gave up chocolate, you know, because you knew it was bad for you or something like that. I mean, it's, it's different. It just is different when children get saved. It, I'm not saying they're not saved, but it's hard to see the dramatic release of power that you get in an adult life when you just walk away from alcohol and drugs and things like that. And so we talked about the second generation problem a few weeks ago, and it is a problem to really relate the gospel and its power to our children uh, and have them see it for themselves, but they need to. More likely, you've attended churches that either downplayed the experience of the power of the Holy Spirit, or they put Him on display as a force that takes control of you, forcing you to act weirdly. The, the church, especially in the United States, has gone to extremes. One extreme we would call conservative, uh, where any talk of the Holy Spirit is hushed and downplayed. They say the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the day you got saved and you got everything you need. And you know what? That, I think, is true, except that you need to go on being filled with the Spirit in a dynamic, renewable way. And so often in conservative churches, uh, you get the idea that you're saved and now it's all up to you. And however much you read the Bible and you pray and you tithe, and especially tithe, and do these other things, that's how spiritual you're going to be. And we tend to forget the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And on the other end are churches that we would call, uh, well, hyper-Pentecostal, I'd say, where the Holy Spirit is always some kind of a sideshow, where there's a whipping up of emotion until everybody starts speaking in tongues and running around the church and acting in ways that we don't see anybody acting in the New Testament, certainly not Jesus, who said the Holy Spirit is going to come and be another comforter just like I was. I mean, imagine some of the things you've seen and heard at Pentecostal churches going on at the Last Supper when Jesus was talking to his disciples. It didn't happen that way. And so because of this uh, wrong emphasis on the teaching of the Holy Spirit, we all get kind of scared whenever the teaching comes. What's Gene going to say? What does he mean? What is he talking about? Where's the line between heresy and truth and stuff? And here's what I'm saying. More and more, the New Testament teaches that the norm is that a saved person is filled and ought to go on being filled day by day as a dynamic, renewable experience. I don't think anybody can argue with that. If that's not your norm, if that's not my norm, it should be and it can be and it needs to be. So today, if you get saved, let's say you're not a Christian and you get saved, God the Holy Spirit will come to indwell you and you will be filled and you will experience His power in a transformed life. Old things will pass away and all things will become new. If you're already saved, 
but you're honest and you see that you have little or no power of the Holy Spirit in your life, you can have what we might call a subsequent experience by faith that then becomes your new normal as you seek and ask and knock to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a lot more we could say, but the teaching that always emerges is that whatever we do, it is, and this is to quote Zechariah 4.6, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. I first heard Billy Graham say this. I've since heard lots of people say it. Pastor Chuck used to say it as well, Pastor Chuck Smith. It's not do you have more of the Spirit, but does the Holy Spirit have all of you? And so the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, that he's a person and all of the things we're talking about, very important to study out and to parse out. But the bottom line is at the end, is, is my life giving evidence that the Holy Spirit is not just within me, but flowing through me? And am I having uh, experiences of his power? Verse 11, So the land rested for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. We don't know anything about the 40-year career of Othniel. Did he win one decisive battle? Was it a campaign? The details are omitted so that we focus on the spirit rather than on Othniel being spiritual or strategic. God could have chosen anybody. That's the whole idea. Do you need to be a hero or a heroine? Ask and seek and knock for the Holy Spirit whom Jesus promised would flow from our lives like a torrent of living water and then go on being filled. Now next we're going to see Ehud whose heroics we're going to subtitle Happy Entrails to You. Let that sink in. His manager warned Apollo Creed to not fight Rocky Balboa because he was a southpaw. Later in his career, Rocky tried to confuse Clubber Lang by fighting him right-handed. Lefties create problems, as King Eglon was about to find out. So verse 12, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek, went and defeated Israel, and took possession of the city of Palms, which is Jericho. Unlike Megamind, the Israelites were never good at being bad. You know who were good at being bad? Canaanites, and in this case, represented by the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Amalekites in an alliance. Now, they were already evil, so God wasn't the author of their evil. As we've told you before, these Canaanite people groups had been warned by God for over 400 years that his people were coming and that they were going to either expel them or eradicate them from the land. And the Canaanites had the opportunity to be saved and join Israel as converts. But finding them rebellious, God said, I can use them as an arm of discipline against my rebellious people who want to be just like them. And so that's what's happening here. So the children of Israel, in verse 14, served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. Now, that was a decade longer than previously, more than twice as long. But don't blame God or suggest his discipline is overly harsh because we next read, in verse 15, when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. The idea here I get is that as soon as they cried out to him, he acted on their behalf. It was their stubbornness for waiting so long. And if you don't think people would wait this long, you've never raised any children. You've never given them a time out. I'm going to give you a time out. Hours can go by. 
And their little wills are bent against your will. And, and you can't let them win. That's why you have to be careful what you say to your children when you're going to discipline them. Don't give these huge ultimatums you can't follow up on. I call them grocery store ultimatums. You just shouldn't have brought the kid into the store in the first place. But since you did, now that you're in the checkout line, he or she is all over you. And, it's, and I've, I was at the bank one time. I've used this one before. It's my favorite one. The mother turned and said, you will never watch television again in your life. Oh, man, when you say that, your kid has you. Because he knows you just lied to him. He knows that you're not going to follow through. You're not going to do anything about the fact that he's spitting on the guy behind you in line. He's just going to have to deal with it. And so this is, this is just the nature. And it's the nature of the Israelites. We're going to remain. We don't want to be in subjection to... King Eglon, but we're going to wait here and wait here for 18 years. All right. Come on, Lord. And the Lord acts immediately on their behalf. Verse 15. When they cried out to the Lord, he raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Now, the Bible mentions left-handed people on only three occasions. Here in the story of Ehud's assassination of the king. Later in Judges, we're going to meet 700 southpaws who could use the sling with deadly accuracy. And then there are two dozen ambidextrous warriors who come to support David in Hebron. All of these stories of left-handed people in the Bible appear in military contexts. And curiously, all of them involve members of the tribe of Benjamin. They must have had a genetic predisposition for left-handedness. Benjamin, by the way, means son of my right hand. So these guys were left-handed sons of my right hand. What a weird... I wonder if they had a t-shirt to that effect. If you happen to be left-handed, I don't need to tell you that the world is a tough place for you. I don't remember any left-handed desks when I was growing up, and that's the way it should... Oh, I'm sorry. Left-handers just have a hard time. Scissors, desks, the whole thing. Historically, left-handedness has been seen as an oddity, even a disability. People were encouraged to correct their left-handed children. That was once medically allowed. Oh, your child seems to be left-handed. You need to get control of that. Teach him to use his right hand. Being left-handed was even seen as a sign of evil. Something that is wicked or evil we call sinister. And that's the Latin word for the left hand. Do you surf or snowboard? How many surf or snowboard? You'll know this. Board sport riders are footed in one of two stances, generally called regular and goofy. Who do you think the goofy-footed riders are? Yeah, they're the lefties. More to our point, in Hebrew, being left-handed is described as being restricted in your right hand. And so if you wanted to say somebody was right, that guy's right-handed, that left-hander, no, no, he's not a left-hander, he's somebody who's restricted in his right hand and has to use his left hand. Now, according to commentators, this could mean of Ehud that he was disabled, that he was ambidextrous, or he was just simply left-handed. He was a lefty, and it would have been seen as a disadvantage because he was in a right-handed world. So, verse 15, When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed guy. By him the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. It sounds here like Ehud was the regular courier of Israel's tribute to King Eglon. And so King Eglon was somewhat familiar with him. We'll see that's important because it helps him to let his guard down a little bit later on. 
Now Ehud made himself a dagger, double-edged and a cubit in length, fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. Now I'm guessing that King Eglon's guards would conduct a pat-down of anyone who approached him on his throne. A right-handed warrior would wear his sword on his left thigh. It's easy to get sloppy working security, and in Ehud's case, they might pat him down as they would a righty and finding no weapons on his left thigh. The commentators all suggest that because he was left-handed, they didn't bother to you know, search him on the other side, but it's more likely that they just got lazy. One thing you don't want to get lazy doing, and that is patting people down for weapons. But it happens. It's not funny, but I, there's at least one famous uh, YouTube video where a, a police officer is checking a suspect into jail, and the guy reaches into his pocket and pulls out a gun that they had failed to notice. And, and so it just, you don't want to get sloppy. One of my favorite moments when we used to, this is totally off the subject, but I have to tell you this. We used to go out and teach at Avenel State Prison. And the guards, God bless you guys, I wouldn't do what you did for all the money in, in the world. But the guards would like to mess with the Christian workers sometimes, the non-Christian guards. And so one time I was just hanging out, you know, behind the fence waiting for them to let me in. Finally a guard came and he had two prisoners with him and he brought them both in. He said, he says, hey, do me a favor and pat this guy down. Are you kidding me? I mean, I've seen television shows, you know, before. Is this on me when he shanks somebody? What is this all about? So I'm going, hey, you got to help me out here, buddy, you know, and stuff. And, yeah, we kind of, you know, it's kind of weird. There's a way of doing that, by the way, if you didn't know it, and I don't know it. And so, uh, but you get lazy sometimes. I mean, and whoever this guard was, God bless him, he was getting lazy. Uh, and he had me pat the guy down. So that was happening here. Uh, to Ehud's uh, help. And as I said, since he was a regular courier, more to his advantage because they had never expected anything bad from him. So he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Eglon was a very fat man. Wow, did I just say that? Because fat is considered a four-letter word. How would this get translated if there was a politically correct version of the Bible? King Eglon was obese. King Eglon had a high body mass indicator. <laughs> king Eglon was plus-sized. He was the plus-sized king. He had to shop at, you know, a plus-sized king shop. He was horizontally challenged. I don't know, but in verse 18, it says, When he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, Keep silence. And all who attended him went out from him. Ehud left with the group, got as far as Gilgal, and then returned. The stone images mentioned here are most likely a reference to the memorial of 12 stones which Joshua's men had taken from the Jordan River in Joshua chapter 4. His return alone would further dissuade any thoughts of assault because you'd think if he was going to make a move, he would have made it when there was a strength of a group with him and that it was a concentrated effort, not just one man. His plan required he be alone with Eglon, and so having a secret message for him would do the trick. So Ehud came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. Then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you, and he arose from his seat. So Eglon was chilling. He was chillaxing in his cool upper chamber. The Moabite king was familiar with the God of Israel. He probably realized that God was strengthening him for 18 years against the Jews. It would pique his curiosity to know God had a secret message 
for him. I think he thought it was a good, positive message. But in verse 21, Ehud reached with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. Even the hilt went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the dagger out of his belly, and his entrails came out. Thank you, writer of Judges. You know what I love about Judges? People go out and they say, Hey, I, got, I, I get another Bible version. Is, are these stories really in the Bible? Happy entrails to you, King Eglon. But anyway, at the end of Godfather 3, Michael Corleone sends his old bodyguard to visit Don Lucchese. He tells Lucchese he has a secret message that he has to whisper in his ear. He does, and then he grabs Lucchese's own glasses, his eyeglasses, stabs him in the jugular, assassinating him. It's nothing new under the sun. Somebody was reading Judges when they wrote Godfather 3. Verse 23, Then Ehud went out through the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. When he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look, and to their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said, He's probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. Pardon the potty talk, but his servants thought King Eglon was relieving himself on the toilet. They assumed he exchanged one throne for the other. <laughs> and that's as far as I'm going to go with that. So don't worry. If your children are here, you're, you're, well, I don't know how safe they are. But anyway, verse 25. So they waited till they were embarrassed. And still he had not opened the doors of the upper room. Therefore they took the key and opened them. And there was their master fallen dead on the floor. I'll share with you one of my most endearing childhood memories, making me the man I am today. Growing up as a kid, if I spent too much time in the bathroom, which I never knew how much time that was, one of my brothers would come by and knock loudly and say, Did you fall in? Is that a famous thing? Is it just my culture that is that's an Italian thing or what? And what does that mean? Yeah, I fell in the toilet. Help me, I can't get out. I'm stuck. I forgot to put the seat down and now I'm wedged in. Please help me. Of course, I'm not yelling for help. I'm not asking for help. I'm waiting for you to pound on the door. And yell through the house so that everybody knows I'm relieving myself. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, my brothers. One thing you didn't want to do was let yourself into the fat man's chambers, and especially if he was doing his business. At some point, however, they simply could no longer wait. <laughs> Verse 26, this could be the day. But Ehud had escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the stone images. And I have to think there's something really bad now. Come on. All right, there we go. And it happened when he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains, and he led them. And then he said to them, Follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. And at that time, they killed 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor, not a man escaped. Conquest was as easy as breathing when they were walking with God. And, and it was, as far as I can tell, it was just one guy that was walking with God. But he said, hey, right now, today, let's do this. And God slew 10,000 Moabites and gave the land rest for 80 years, it says in verse 30. Now, we don't need to be told that Ehud had the Spirit come upon him. 
What Ehud adds to our understanding of being God's hero is that the Lord prefers to work through our weaknesses, not our strengths. Anyone hearing this story in ancient times would see Ehud as a weak, disadvantaged, disabled person. Even if he was skilled with his left hand, left-handedness was something frowned upon and to be pitied for. God is glorified. He is magnified when his strength is seen against the backdrop of our weakness. A weak, spirit-filled believer is God's preferred hero. You and I certainly qualify, right? You are weak, and we need to be spirit-filled. You don't need to be left-handed to be, spiritually speaking, goofy-footed. All of us are goofy-footed when it comes to spirituality, and thus God can use any one of us. Now, last we see Shamgar, whose heroics we might subtitle the one-verse wonder, because this single verse is all we have of him in Scripture. Speaking of Jack Black, in Nacho Libre, the hero and his sidekick eat some delicious... Well, we were talking about him earlier. They eat some delicious-looking seasoned corn on the cob that is being sold on the streets of Mexico. Later, they use it as a projectile weapon to great comic effect. Improvised weapons are great fun in the movies. And it's the hallmark of our final hero. Verse 31. After him was Shamgar, son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also delivered Israel. Shamgar and Anath are not Hebrew names. He was a convert to Judaism. That's just an extra bonus. God telling us that he is not a respecter of persons. There's nothing about you, not your gender, not your ethnicity, not anything that precludes you from being used by God. An ox goad is a stick about eight feet long with a sharpened iron point used to train and drive oxen when plowing. Shamgar used the ox goad like a javelin or a spear. We don't know if he was a farmer familiar with ox goads or a soldier who improvised it as a weapon. We don't know if he killed 600 Philistines at once or over the length of his career. Perhaps he was plowing with his oxen when the Philistines appeared over the hill. Bad day for them. You know that point in movies when the hero is hopelessly outnumbered and you think, well, this is going to be fantastic. He's going to wipe out all of these guys. Shemgar was that guy. What we do know is that his weapon was adequate to his task. Now, we know that the Philistines had iron chariots and judges also mentioned swords. Looking forward a little in history, we see Goliath the Philistine with an iron helmet and a shield and leggings and all kinds of armor. So it's for sure that the Philistines were heavily armored warriors who had chariots against one guy, maybe a farmer with an ox goad, who's in a, a, a mood to take on the Philistines and kill 600 of them. It's never more resources that you need in order to be a hero or a heroine. In fact, more resources tend to distract you, or detract you rather, from dependence upon the Holy Spirit to work through your weaknesses. We like resources. I like them. Money, people, uh, buildings, you know, whatever it might be. You always think, if I had more of this, we could reach more people, we could do more things. And, and I'm not saying none of that can be true or that God can't use that, but it's a dependence upon those things. And a lot of times we get into an individual situation where we think, well, I just don't have the resources in order to really do what God wants me to do. If I only had a little bit more money or a little bit more time or a little bit more something else. 
And uh, Shamgar's teaching us that whatever you have is already adequate. Why? Because you can be a spirit-filled believer who is showing God's strength in your weakness. And that's really the bottom line. That's why these three heroes start our journey in Judges. Because God wants us to know right from the beginning the biblical equipment of a hero. Dependent on the Spirit, not dependent on material resources, believing that God's divine strength is revealed in their weakness. Every one of us who is saved qualifies for hero duty. Go from here, God's hero or God's heroine. Let's pray.